You're listening to Chasing the Word on Compassion Radio. Morning, honey. It's time for Compassion Radio's Chasing the Word. This is the way we start every week on Compassion Radio. A study of the book in the Bible that makes a difference for us in the week as we think about these psalms right now. And we try to build on that the rest of the week with the themes that God stirs in our hearts. We are in Psalm 101 starting this week. I like this psalm because it is very poetically written. And it's kind of a declaration that David is making about, this is who I want to be. This is who I'm choosing to be. These are the things I'm choosing to incorporate in my everyday life in praise to God. Walking through this psalm is a great reminder to me that these are some things that I can do. I'm not a king or a queen (laughs) over a nation, but I am the controller of my life in the ways that I can choose to do the things that God prompts me to do. David doesn't spend his time isolating himself from the populace. He's not singing as just the king, just the prophet, just the poet. He always seems to be wanting to be a man of the people Mm -hmm. and not trying to be a man of the people. Like he's faking it. He lived it. Mm -hmm. His whole upbringing had a majestic history, which he hearkens to, and the Bible is full of his ancestors and their exploits and why it led up to him. But he didn't live like he'd entitled to anything. But as we talked about in other psalms, he does presume upon God a lot Mm -hmm. because of his relationship. And that's the thing that always stirs us and bothers us, is that why would a guy who had everything need to keep asking God to show up? And why would he demand that God do these things? Well, a couple of reasons. One, he expected him to show up because he knew him and treated him as if he was truly his heavenly father. And that he was the father of his family and the father of his nation. And that he was talking to his dad. Mm. And in that, he seemed to have a lot in common with the way that Jesus talked to his father directly. And in some ways, we see Jesus even modeling his speech patterns and the way he addresses God the Father the way David did. Mm. And yet we know that he was an ordained king and prophet and priest. All these things were in David. He seemed to dance between all these different responsibilities so well. But he also was a deeply messed up dude a lot of times. It traveled with him throughout his life. He was not the paramount example of what we should be in all things. This is not a Garden of Eden story in David's life. Mm -hmm. And yet God takes root in his life in ways that disturb us and inspire us in equal measures to me. Yeah. Well, I think David lived a contemplative life. Yeah. And he started out as a contemplative in his early years as a shepherd, he spent a lot of time in solitude. How do you not contemplate things when you're sitting out in the middle of the field? Yeah. So I think that that developed in him at a young age, and he began to incorporate that into his entire life, going away and being silent. Perhaps some of the problems he had later in life were because he couldn't get back to that solitude Mm, so easily. He couldn't just step out anymore when he had all these responsibilities and he felt the weight of the robes of his office on Mm -hmm. him. And that could have been what destroyed some of his closeness with God and his ability to reconnect with the wellspring of his own life Mm -hmm, spiritually. mm -hmm. So we're going to read Psalm 101 today in its totality because it's only eight verses. But we're only going to pick off like a first four to contemplate ourselves today on the program. Why don't you go ahead and read it from the translation of your choice. I'm going to read it from the Passion Translation. The title is Integrity, David's Poetic Praise. Lord, I will sing about your faithful love for me. My song of praise will have your justice as its theme. 
I'm trying my best to walk in the way of integrity, especially in my own home, but I need your help. I'm wondering, Lord, when will you appear? I refuse to gaze on that which is vulgar. I despise works of evil people and anything that moves my heart away from you. I will not let evil hold me in its grip. Every perverse and crooked way I have put away from my heart, for I will have nothing to do with the deeds of darkness. I will silence those who secretly want to slander my friends, and I will not tolerate the proud and arrogant. My innermost circle will only be those whom I know are pure and godly. They will be the only ones I allow to minister to me. There's no room in my home for hypocrites, for I can't stand chronic liars who flatter and deceive. At each and every sunrise, I will awake to do what's right and put to silence those who love wickedness, freeing God's people from their evil grip. I will do all of this because of my great love for you. A lot of promises going on in that scripture. And it is scripture to us because God, obviously, throughout history, kept imprinting these words and these thoughts in deep ways on the hearts and minds of leaders and congregations of Jews and of Christians across centuries and centuries. This one chapter, even, of Psalms is well well known as a literary piece as much as it is about a scriptural anchor for mm-hmm. us. But it does have a kind of power that other kinds of poetry just don't have. It doesn't just speak for us or about us. It speaks in our stead before a true and almighty God. Mm. That's what we have assumed about this poem. It's not just a plea for help from ourselves or identifying an emotion or a characteristic within us. It is reaching way outside of us, but assuming that we're close enough that God could hear. Mm -hmm. And when you really believe God is going to hear what you say next, How could there not be a lot of expectation in your heart and dread in some ways that I may mess this up badly? So I really hope that God is kind enough and indulgent enough to hear me out before he corrects me or fixes my words or edits me. (laughs) There's not an edit in this. There's a lot of promises that seem really kind of empty from the human perspective. How in the world is David going to live up to his own promises here? I have no clue. Even as a king... How does he have the power to enforce all these things upon mankind? Well, he separates this out into two very distinct portions of this scripture. In this very short chapter, the first four verses are things that he's going to do internally, things about himself. Mm -hmm. He's saying, I want to do this for me, and I'm going to sing praises. I'm going to live in integrity. I'm going to remove worthless things and wrongdoing from my vision. I'm going to do these things to make myself more full of praise, to make myself more worthy to be in the presence of God. The next four verses, five through eight, are things that he says, I'm going to do these for other people. I'm going to take care of those around me and help remove these stumbling blocks from their lives. It's very distinct in the shift. Yeah. It's like he's saying, because you are, I can, in mm-hmm. those first four verses. And the last four is like, because we are, I will. Mm-hmm. And partnership in some ways of seeing this thing lived out so that his office, the place where God is in now, has purpose and meaning and fulfillment and will accomplish that which God set it out to do. Yeah. And David understands that God anoints a partnership. It has to be. God could enforce himself and just say, I'm the king, period, which is what he really wanted Israel to do early on. You have a God. You've got the prophets. Why do you need a king like the rest of the nations? 
And yet they kept clamoring for something that made it more tangible to the people. Yeah. They felt like they were disconnected when truly in the early years, they were more connected, more close to God and less interruptions between the person and God than any other people on earth based on the theology that was being spilled out to them through Moses. Yeah. When you put someone between you and God, that someone is never going to be perfect like God. And that's what Israel did. They put someone between them and God as far as this king. We can't bear to look on you, and we can't bear to have you look on us. So please put someone in for us. And Aaron and Moses functioned like that early on. Now David's doing the same thing. He's playing Aaron and Moses in a lot of ways. How many kings sit around and actually practice their guitar? A lot. (laughs) And so you, you can see him in the throne room between meetings, just strumming away or working on a lyric or actually creating a song. It never says that he stopped being a musician. Mm-hmm. or that he stopped worshiping God. In fact, as king, he embarrassed people from time to time by breaking out into song. <laughs> He's like the show tunes king or something. He, <laughs> he was the guy that would literally just throw it out there. He couldn't keep the emotion in. He had to express it somehow. Mm-hmm. And he was very leaky that way. So this preparing for what will become in those first four verses seems to me like he's singing to the great I am so that I can. Yeah. And he does some couplets here. I want to talk about the things that are grouped together in each of the verses. They are poetic in structure, but there's also a lot of deep meaning and options you have available to you in the way you read and interpret and translate these particular verses. For example, go ahead and read verse 1 again from the, the Passion Translation. Lord, I will sing about your faithful love for me. My song of praise will have your justice as its theme. That translation does not take much care with keeping them in the exact order, but in the emotional impact so that it lands on a thought. Now, in the voice translation, with the same kind of discipline, making sure the things, the themes are correct and not missed in the verse, it reads a lot differently even. It says, I will sing of God's unsparing love and justice. Whether getting Bibles into closed countries, relief supplies into dangerous refugee camps, or providing training in theology books to barefoot pastors as they begin their ministry. These are all the kind of things we love to share with you every day. And more importantly, they're the kind of things we like to do. The first and best way to reach us is through our website, CompassionRadio.com. You can also support us with a call during Pacific Time Business Hours at 1-800-868-2478. You can also text COMPASSION to 53445 to give right through your phone no matter where you are. And note our new mailing address which is P.O. Box 77160, Corona, California, 92877. We so much value your messages and letters. And know this, your gift is deeply appreciated. Thank you for loving us in this way. Now, in the voice translation, it reads a lot differently even. It says, I will sing of God's unsparing love and justice. To you, O Eternal One, I will sing praises. It says, I will sing. It ends with, I will sing. It -hmm. says, your unsparing love and justice. And unsparing is a really interesting word in English. Mm -hmm. It means not to spare the whatever. Usually we would say in English, using the arcane phrase, I will not spare the rod. I'm not going to withhold my discipline. I'm not going to withhold my whatever. So unsparingly means don't hold back. And he puts love and justice right there together. Mm -hmm. We've had a lot of problems in modern Christendom, I think, and even the past 300 years, of not letting those two things really truly be married. We talk in the language of justice and expect love to show up. Mm. Or we stick with love and don't talk about how just God is and how much he hates evil. 
And it never, of course, ever says, I hate people. Often in the Word of God, Old Testament especially, God will identify a person as representative of a kind of evil he detests, and he will call out their names for being kind of the totem, the the poster child of that thing. But he never looks at mankind, even though we know that sin exists. He never camps on the thought of, I hate people. Mm. Oh, they drive me nuts. Mm -hmm. He doesn't do this. Nowhere in the Bible you can find that kind of language where God sits there and says, they're not worth it. He does express the kind of frustration that humans can identify with, saying, I'm almost sorry I created you. Yeah. (laughs) David wants the praise and honor of God and acknowledging his love and his justice to be the reemergent thing, the thing that comes out on top. Mm -hmm. So he says, to you, O eternal one, I will sing praises. He sees in God, and he wants us to see in God that he is eternal. He's not going away. He will always be. And the thing that will always be is unsparing in love and justice. Mm, Both of things just overflow, they pour out, and they can't not intermingle. It's like a good recipe. You can't have the dish without both things as key ingredients. I think he's saying that this is the recipe for God. Mm. God's recipe is justice and love in the appropriate measures. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, you have to have both, and God exemplifies both. He He offers both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The justice that comes from God is always with a heart of love, His yeah. faithful love, His unsparing love. There's never this vindictive God yeah. that we see in other traditions oftentimes. There's a reason why it says don't go the way of Baal or cruel gods that they would fall back on. What I see in David, these first four verses especially, is David is doing the inner work mm-hmm. that needs to be done personally, interpersonal work. This time with God, the solitude, this contemplative thought process that he's going through. These are some checklists that David has in his mind that he's going to address in his own life. And in doing so, in spending the time doing this hard work internally, David can then, the outpouring of his life, protect others or encourage others along the way of the same kind of lifestyle. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing here. To see all that other hard work of actually making right happen in the world, those declarative statements of I will. Mm -hmm. In English, we declare it that way. The same phrase or word used in Hebrew could very easily just be mentioned like, it is my will to, it is Mm -hmm. my desire, it is my heart. Yeah, it's a deep commitment. To do these things. Mm -hmm. And I need to see how it's going to play out. Mm -hmm. It is an aspirational statement. It's not not even declarative so much as it is just hopeful. Mm -hmm. Oh, that this could be. In English, we get a little more black and white. Right. We say those things as, I will do this thing. But he does say, I will, repeatedly throughout this psalm. Mm -hmm. And when he says, I will sing, I will walk, I will avert my eyes, I will seek. All these things he's saying are things that are about what you would personally do with your own body. Mm -hmm. The next things are about, I will rid my heart. I will drive out things. It's not just about me. It's about how I'm going to treat me Mm -hmm. because of you and how I'll treat others because of you. I like that phrase, honey, how I will treat me because of the way God sees me, Mm -hmm. because of his faithful love and his justice that he's pouring into me. And I think we don't often contemplate that, how will I treat myself? And sadly, in some faith traditions, it's been about denying yourselves often. I mean, there is an element of that in our walk with God, but there's also this element of God saying, take care of you, love others. You can't love others unless you love yourself. 
Yeah. Unless you love God and yourself, it's difficult to serve and love others. Jesus says that's the great commandments right there. Yeah. There's two of them, and it's love God and love others as you love yourself. So that internal work that we do is not about beating ourselves up. It's about taking care of ourselves yeah. and doing the work that rids us of these things that David is talking about in these first four verses, especially putting back in us that love and justice mindset yeah. of God. Allowing God to plant it there. Yeah. I mean, think about how God sees himself. I mean, we don't really talk about that much in our theology. Mm. How does God refer to himself? How does he speak of himself? We know, we've done this word study a number of times together, that he doesn't speak of himself as a he. He's yeah. God. Yeah. We have limitations in our own language of stumbling over our pronouns a lot because there's not the option of letting God say we. Mm. Or they did this together. We have these complex pronouns that kind of try to bring it all back together. Mm. Because God isn't a patriarch. He's a creator. I'll use he because it's familiar to me. But it is fair to say any pronoun you want to use is going to be applicable to God because God is beyond those things. Mm. He encompasses yeah. all that is masculine, is feminine, is human, is childish, is innocent, is wise, is cunning. I mean, you go the whole range of, of humanity it's still going to be with a small drop inside the reality of who God knows himself to be. Mm -hmm. And we have a hard time getting the word pictures in a way that doesn't offend somebody because they want to see only one part of the elephant, so to speak. They want to know what the trunk feels like or the tail or the, or the tusk. That metaphor, that story of the, the blind monks that see the elephant in India has been used to bring this truth home in so many different kind of contexts right. that we are so limited in our willingness to see something in its totality that we only capture something that really makes the thing look really distorted. Yeah. yeah. And we have to avoid that willfully saying, I know God is bigger than my concept of him. I got to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. And allow God to bring that into a deeper understanding of him the way he wants to reveal himself. But we do have to pay attention to how God speaks of himself throughout his own word and allow him to be God. Yeah. David, I think, gets it. He understands that I may not understand him at all, but I got to understand something. I can't be alone in this. So God, please show up and help me understand <laughs> you. And I'm going to aspire to these things. I'm going to pursue. I'm going to do. I'm going to walk. I'm going to sing. And as a result, I can't help but do the rest of this psalm. Yeah. So you talk about doing the hard work up front. As you found out, even in your own studies of solitude and the spiritual disciplines, what seems like hard work is basically the same thing that any artist goes through with practice. Mm -hmm. You learn basics, you learn to repeat them, you learn to make them part of your vernacular. Your body knows how to hold the strings or to touch the keys on the piano, where the voice box knows where to place itself and the air knows where to rise to create the notes from your voice. Mm -hmm. All of those things are developed over time because you practice them. And when you get to a place of proficiency, suddenly that which was difficult becomes not so difficult anymore in the moment, but it also becomes more of a joy. Mm, it becomes first nature. I mean, yeah. It's the first thing that you think of doing. And honestly, even when I was studying music in college and the time that I would spend practicing, it felt like a chore at mm -hmm. first. It felt... Um, selfish more and more scales. in some ways. Yeah. And it, it felt, you know, taking all this time away from other things I could be doing or whatever, mm -hmm. but it began to be a joy to do it, knowing that I was quote, getting it. Mm -hmm. 
And I feel like, like you just said, I feel the same way about some of these spiritual disciplines that I've been learning and seeing that they are beneficial in so many ways, not just in my walk with the Lord, but in my relationship with others, because I am less quick, hopefully, and you can attest to this <laughs> maybe more, less quick to react to things without thinking through things first. Yeah. And that has been, for me, internally a beautiful thing. I don't feel the need or the edginess that I had felt before. And David is a great example of that. He's showing us that these things are right and good to yeah. do. They're not selfish and self-serving. They right. are God-serving and self-building. Right. He's seeing a God who might be jealous for his loved one, saying that God has a passion for us, but he's not selfish. Mm-hmm. David never portrays God as being petty or being insolent. Mm-hmm. He sees him as being passionate yeah. and being as close as your next breath. And he wants to breathe with you. He wants to breathe upon you. He wants your breath to be full of life. Mm-hmm. So David is speaking as if he assumes that that character, that integrity he speaks about in verse 1 and 2, will become his because he bears the imprint. He has the DNA spiritually of his father. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so in closing on this first take of the psalm, I want to remind ourselves that, you know, the last two verses of that first half, it says, I'll refuse to look at sordid things. I will detest worthless deeds and those who stray away from doing the right thing. Evil will not get a hold on me. I'm just not going to let it. Those things are crying out to God in a way that God, you know, he would look at us and say, we'll see how it goes when you finally get there. But I see the heart of somebody who never intentionally wants to go a dark place and defy God. David's saying that this is who I am because of who you are. He's taking a big risk here by making big promises. But they're always promises that seem to be based upon his reliance upon his Father in heaven, and that without him, none of those promises make a difference anyway because they're not going to amount to anything in life. I like the way the Common English Bible puts it. It says, none of that will stick to me. (laughs) It's just going to bounce right off of me. And that's where we end the first half of Psalm 101, because with that hope of that evil, that grossness, that debaseness of life all around us, it's just not going to stick to me. I'm the Teflon saint, you know, <laughs> right. because you keep me clean. You wash my clothes. Your blood cleanses me, we say in so many songs, that we're literally being washed out of the things that would stain us forever, that we wouldn't be able to see ourselves without seeing the stain. Mm. He washes it that thoroughly so that when we come to look at ourselves, we really do eventually see ourselves the way he does. And he does not see us as worth less or as stained or as broken beyond repair. He sees us as treasures. Oh, that we remind ourselves about those things every day and not buy into the false rhetoric that the devil wants us to have, that you are beyond saving. You are beyond hope. You are the problem all the time. No, we have problems. We have sin. We have a problem that God has addressed, but we are his treasures. We are not the problem. Yeah. So, that's where we'll leave you at the end of this first half of Psalm 101. We'll pick it up at verse 5. And in the meantime, I want to remind folks that we have a Bible study guide that's available each one of our discussions every week on Psalm 101 this time. So, pick it up at our website at CompassionRadio.com. You'll see it in the podcast section of our website. It will be a description of the series and a link. 
to a PDF file of the Bible study notes for each chapter we go through. So we'd love to have you download a copy of that today. And we'll see you tomorrow on the next Compassion Radio. Remember, friends, Compassion Radio is always a coalition of the willing. Are you willing to help get out God's good news stories of the kingdom really living the gospel in the 21st century? Oh, I hope so. Just visit our website, CompassionRadio.com, or call our toll-free order line, 1-800-868-2478. And note our new mailing address, which is P.O. Box 77160, Corona, California, 92877. Again, that's box 77160, Corona, California, 92877. We need you, friend, so contact us today.